You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to Creekside. I'm John Bruce, one of the pastors here. Um, Jeff will be on parental leave for the next couple of weeks on... uh, On Wednesday, Cashel had their fourth son, little Nathaniel, and uh, what's that? Fourth child. <laughs> it was an amazing birth. It was, uh, I couldn't believe that Nathaniel met his, his siblings and uncle, his grandparents, all within an hour of birth. It's just amazing what they do now. It's, uh, he got, got his social security card, got an Instagram account. He's ready to rock and roll. So anyway, but uh, just a real, real blessing. And I, I want to pray for him and for all the children that have been born this month at Creekside and just pray for us. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your great goodness and mercy how you've created yet another little life. And uh, thank you that you see each one of us the same way as uh, your children. You love us as much on the last day of our life as you do on the first day of our life. Thank you for your care and your protection and your love for each one of us. Lord, I pray for all of us today that you will speak to us from your word that you will uh, guide us by your spirit and the things you want us to learn. We can't learn anything apart from you. And just lay at your feet our cares and concerns and and, uh, needs for a little while so that we can hear you and your voice and hear what we really need for, as you said, man will not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Thank you for your word and the way it teaches us the ways of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't been with us, we are in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a very practical letter. It deals with some specific problems that Paul heard about in the church there, and it answers some specific questions that the Corinthians had. And so we've been working our way for months through 1 Corinthians. We're getting near the end. We're in chapter 15 right now, where Paul addresses another need in the church. Apparently, a number of the Corinthians had believed in Jesus' resurrection when they believed the gospel. But they didn't believe that they would rise from the dead. And so Paul is is filling in their their knowledge in in the first paragraph, which... uh, Kyle spoke to us a couple of weeks ago. He explains how Christ's resurrection is actually fundamental to the gospel. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. And then last week, in the next paragraph, which Jeff taught on, Paul explains how Christ's resurrection wasn't just his best trick. But Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. That that's the reason he rose from the dead, was to release us from our slavery to death and to grant us eternal life. 
Now, in the paragraph we're going to look at today, Paul makes the argument that Christians believe in life after death. Otherwise, their lifestyle is inexplicable. They would never make the kinds of decisions they make if they didn't believe in life after death. And that's why some of you Corinthians should believe in that, too. So in verses uh, 29 through 32, he explains why faith in the resurrection, faith in life after death is absolutely essential if you're going to live the Christian life. And then in verses uh, 33 through 34, he explains why faith needs to shape. Faith in the resurrection needs to shape the way we live our lives. It, it's really it impressed me here is that these people are really Christians. He says in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15 that by this you have been saved because you have believed this. And yet, they have this huge hole in their understanding of the gospel. They can believe that Christ rose from the dead, but they don't yet believe that they rose from the dead. And that's just a reminder to me that, that we, we are saved by believing the gospel. But then we grow as we understand the gospel more and more and more. And that we really can't live the Christian life or grow in the Christian life without growing in our understanding of what the gospel really teaches. That's why it's so important that Paul goes to such pains to explain to them all about life after death. And I think the larger issue for us is that we will grow as we understand what God has done for us through Christ. So that's what we're going to look at, at today. Let's begin with verse 29. Paul picks up, remember he's been talking about how they're going to rise from the dead. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? He's, he's talking about how, how the way Christians behave is inexplicable unless they believe there's life after death. Now, we don't know what baptism for the dead was. This is the only place in the Bible it appears, and it obviously wasn't something that, that, that was carried through. Our best guess is, is that people were baptized in the place of their loved ones who had already died without being baptized. And so Paul's argument is, why would they do that if our bodies aren't going to be resurrected, if our bodies are just meaningless, they were, they were born to die, they're, we're just going to spend all of eternity floating around heaven as souls, bodiless souls. Why worry about the body? The fact that Christians are, think it's important enough to be baptized for their loved ones who weren't baptized to make sure uh, that shows that Christians believe in life after death. And then he gives another example from his own life. He says, why are we also in danger every hour? Our Bible study group has just almost finished, or just finished going through the book of Acts. And one of the things that Acts impresses you is the incredible dangers that Paul and the early Christians faced. I mean, Paul had a group of enemies who followed him around from town to town tried to kill him. He was always in danger of death. If they couldn't kill him, they'd cause a riot. When, when Paul would go to a town, it was as likely as his preaching would result in a riot as it was in a revival. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was stoned. He was 
drowned. He, Paul was always in danger. There was never a, a secure day. Paul never had a, a day off. And he says, why do I go through that if this life is all there is? Why put yourself in danger? Why put yourself in peril? Why put yourself in discomfort if this life is all there is? You know, I, I, I read this week that the word for witness in the New Testament, you shall be my witnesses, is also the word for martyr. Because in the early church, being his witness probably would lead to you dying for your faith. And yet these people embrace that. And throughout the centuries, Christians have embraced martyrdom They've stepped boldly. They've, they've traveled to countries where they know they probably won't get out alive to take the gospel to them. They've moved in situations because they know they have life after death, that this is just a brief moment to walk by faith before an eternity of glory. And that's Paul's point. Why do Christians behave as they do unless they believe in life after death? Before, uh, right when World War II was declared, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian, was teaching in the, in the U.S. But he chose to return to Germany even though he knew it could cost him his life because he believed that's where God wanted him to go. I was, reading, I, I was listening to a, a talk on a podcast the other day and about a woman during the Cold War who felt called by God to go to Albania. Albania was at that time the most closed country to the gospel. And she went there, and sure enough, she had only been sharing her faith a week or so before she was arrested by the secret police, tried quickly, and condemned to death. And so she was placed in a car and driven outside the town, and she figured, well, this is it. I was obedient to God. I, I look forward to seeing him. But the car didn't stop. It just kept going. Rather than pulling off to the side of the road and her being shot or whatever, the car just kept going and going and going until it got to the border. And the, and the driver didn't talk to her at all. The driver just kept driving. And finally, she got to the border. He opened the door and said goodbye. <laughs> and she st still believes that that was an angel. But anyway, there is just a, a sense of, of Bible-believing Christians that this life is not all there is. And therefore, it's more important for me to be obedient and share the gospel and be in danger. Paul goes on with that. He says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ, that is, the boasting I have of how Christ has used me in your life, I die daily. There's a, there's a, every day, Paul thought, this is it. This is the last day. If from human motives... I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. What does it profit me? I thought Paul must have gotten into the Colosseum, but I don't think that's what it was because Paul was a Roman citizen, and you could not be thrown into the Colosseum with the beasts as a Roman citizen. He's probably talking about at Ephesus there was a big riot because the, the business community was so incensed at the Christians because the, their, they made their money by making these little idols of, of Diana. And the business had fallen off to such a, a, it affected the whole economy. 
And so they had a riot and they brought the Christians in. And I think that's what Paul is talking about, fighting with these, these bloodthirsty business people who are mad because their profits have been cut into. He says, if I just did that from human motives, how, how stupid am I? But it's because I know I'm going to live forever. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. He, he quotes Isaiah 22, 13, where, where the people of God in Israel refused to repent. And because they refuse to repent, they see it's inevitable that Babylon is about to invade them and conquer them. And their response, as people of unbelief always is, is, well, we've only got a short time to live, so let's make the most of it. And, and that's historically what's happened. When, when people that don't have faith are faced with the prospect of death, they typically try to squeeze in as much pleasure and as much sin as they possibly can. That's, that's the idea. I, I think of the movie uh, Kingdom of God or Kingdom of Heaven, which you may have seen, and there's a scene where Jerusalem is about to fall to the Muslims under Saladin. And, and the Christian bishop of Jerusalem begins to uh, tell all the knights there, convert to Islam, save your lives, you can always repent later. And, and that is a picture, of, of course, of a man who doesn't believe in life after death, who will do anything he has to to save his own his own, that's the idea here, is if there is no resurrection, then live for today, do whatever you have to do to get the last little pleasure out of life. That's, that's the idea there. Paul's point is you cannot live as a Christian in this world if you don't believe in life after death. That's, that's the idea here. Well, in those verses, Paul talks about how faith in the resurrection, in our resurrection, shapes our behavior. In the next couple of verses, it shows why it should shape our behavior. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I think what Paul means here is the only, he's saying to the Corinthians, the only way you can behave as a Christian is to think like a Christian. And the only way you can think like a Christian is to believe the gospel. The gospel says you will live forever if you put your faith in Christ. So it doesn't matter if that part of the gospel isn't that comfortable for you to believe because you're a Greek and believing in the resurrection just kind of goes against the way Greeks think. Because you're not going to be able to live the Christian life until you believe that. So stop sinning, stop holding back, and believe the whole gospel, not just the parts you like. That's the idea. And then he adds this little thing here. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And I thought, what's he mean by that? And I think what he means is, well, think about conversations you have every week. Do those conversations focus more on this world or on the next? This world, right? You know, most of the conversations we have are about the things of this earth. Not many people believe in life after death, let alone focus their life around it. And the fact that there are people who have no knowledge of God in Corinth says 
you Corinthians are so focused on this life, you're not telling people about the next life. That's why you need to repent, become sober-minded, and believe the whole gospel so you can have the impact on other people. I love to talk to people about life after death because I feel like that's, we're really on our ground then. We really have something to talk about and talk about why I am confident in what's going to happen to me and to my family and to my loved ones when we die because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And if we talk like everybody else talks, if, if, if our conversations are about the Warriors or the 49ers or the economy or, or whatever it is that people, you can have some great conversations, but you're not going to do anybody any good. Because what they need to hear is about things they don't think about that often. They don't want to think about that often. What happens when we die, you see? That's where I go. Anyway, well, what all this says is, what I've got to think is, is how should eternity, how should the fact that we're going to live forever shape the way we live our lives right now? And, and I came up with three ways. I'm going to go over one of them each week for the next, as we continue to look at the subject of what's going to happen to us when we die. I want to focus on uh, the practical part on how should this affect the way I live my life now. If I believe I'm going to live forever, how should I live differently than a person who doesn't believe that? Does that make sense? And, and the first area that I thought of and it affects everything, really. But the first area I want to talk about is it affects the way you look at money. Anybody here concerned about money? <laughs> we all are, aren't we? And I want you to see what Jesus says about money and eternity and how one affects the other. This is in Luke 12. Jesus is preaching this great sermon in Luke 12 when he's interrupted. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now, in that culture, the oldest brother was the executor of the estate. And he would get two-thirds of everything his father left behind. And then it was his responsibility to divide the remaining third with his brother or brothers or brothers and sisters. And so apparently, this is a younger brother. And his brother hasn't given him his third. So he asked Jesus to intervene on his behalf. It's a fair request, right? I mean, it's the right thing to do. Let's see how Jesus responds. But he said to him, man who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you. Jesus refuses to get involved. He heeds Proverbs, which says, like a man who picks up a strange dog by the ears is he who meddles in strife not belonging to him. I am not here to settle people's disputes. I'm here to preach the gospel. Then he said to them, the crowd, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. The problem with this young man is not his brother. His problem is his heart. And the fact that he would interrupt Jesus' 
speaking to a huge crowd to say, oh, by the way, I've got something for you to do, shows his heart is not in the right place. Do you see that? That's, that's the I, idea here. And so Jesus says, beware of every form of greed. The, the Greek word for greed is a combination of two words, to want more. More than what? More than you got. That's greed. I think it was Rockefeller. It was one of those titans. But I remember he, he promised himself when he started his career that when he made $50,000 a year, he would stop earning money and just be content with that. Now, 50000 then was like a lot more than today with inflation. But he, he thought, well, he got to 50000 within a few years, and he couldn't stop. And he just kept going and going and making more every year. And he said, it was very interesting, he said, I wanted to stop, but I was afraid that something would happen. Fear. Fear is the motivator for greed. We can't trust in the money because we know we can lose that money. I just need some more. I just need to have more. That, that's what, to want more, that's, that's what Jesus is addressing here. I, I have a problem with tortilla chips. I, uh, I can't eat, I can't eat one. I can't eat five. I will eat everything that's in the bowl there. And then if the waiter says, would you like some more tortilla chips? And I am just bloated. And I'll say, sure. <laughs> That's greed. And we've all got our forms of greed. So Jesus now, because of this man's question or request, begins to take the sermon in a totally new direction and talk about why beware of greed. He told them this parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? This guy has a big problem. His land is so productive that his barns can't contain his produce. Now, he never thinks, maybe I could give some of it away to people who need it. That, that never crosses his mind. Finally, he has an idea this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, what was motivating this man's desire to accumulate? Fear, wasn't it? I haven't been able to relax all my life. I haven't had enough. But now, finally, I can finally relax. I can take my ease. I can, I can kick back. I can, I can do whatever I want because I've got enough stored up for all of life. Most Americans would admire this guy. He's able to take early retirement. Right? He can do with his time anything he wants to do. He doesn't have to worry about money. He's got enough saved up for the rest of his life. Now, wouldn't you like to play, trade places with him? 
God says you wouldn't. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Why was he a fool? He hadn't failed to prepare. He just failed to prepare for the wrong future. Right? He is rich in this world, but he's poor towards God. And now he's standing before God with nothing to show for the years that he spent on earth. Do you see that? The issue is not being rich or poor here. That's not the issue. The issue is being rich or poor towards God. And did I use what God entrusted to me for his interests, or did I use them per, for, for selfish interests? That's the, why beware of, of greed. Now who will own what you have prepared? Is there another verse there? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's easy to be rich in this world and poor in the next. Right? We can store up riches for ourselves or we can use them in God's interests. This man was so worried he wouldn't have what he needed that he spent all this time accumulating wealth here and then somebody else had it because he died. The point is our life is on loan from God and he is the one who determines how long we'll be in this world. And the issue when I stand before God is not how much did I make but how did I use what I made? Did I use it for him and his interests and for people? Or did I selfishly use it for myself? This man's retirement doesn't last past sundown because God calls him home. On the very days his financial goals are met, God calls him. It's be easy to be wealthy spiritually, wealthy materially, but bankrupt spiritually, and that's why God calls him a fool. That's why Jesus says beware of greed. Because greed blinds us. It blinds us to what's real, what's true, what'll last. It puts our faith in the wrong thing. You know, in the Bible, God's greatest rival for our hearts is, do you know? It's money. No man can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, hold the one and, and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Money says, take care of me, and I'll take care of you. God says, fear me, trust me, depend on me, and I'll take care of you. And I have to choose which, who I'm going to trust. Am I going to trust God, or am I going to trust money? That's why Jesus says to beware of greed. And on the day our soul is required of us, what will matter most on that day is not what I left behind for my kids. What will matter to me is what I've accumulated in heaven by using the resources God gave me for his use. So I can trust God now and use my resources for eternal things or I can put my faith in those things. I, I love the story. Of one of my favorite missionaries was C.T. Studd. He was a uh, uh, English cricket player. He was an all-star cricket player and, and uh, became a Christian and 
did a lot of evangelistic speaking and people loved him. But one day he read a, a track by an atheist. And the atheist was talking about kind of what we're talking about here, how what hypocrites most Christians are who say they believe in life after death, but live as if this life is all there is. And in this little track that, that Stud read, the, he said, did I firmly believe, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in the, in the next? Religion would mean everything to me. I would cast away earthly cares as dross, earthly riches as vanity. I would go to the world in season and out, and my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? And, and as Stud read that, he realized this atheist was onto something, that Christians talk about eternal life, but we don't live as if we have eternal life. So Stud gave away all of his tremendous wealth and became a missionary to China with China Inland Mission. He preached the gospel there for years. And then he went to India and, and was involved in taking the gospel to India. Finally, he retired and went back. He and his wife went back to England. And one day, as he was walking down one of the little streets of his town, he noticed a big sign in the window, Cannibals Want Missionaries. And so he went in to find out what it was about. And this was, uh, this was a little mission that was just starting in the Belgian Congo. There was no mission work in the Belgian Congo. And so Stud went. And as an old man, he went by himself to start a mission in the Congo. And, and uh, by the end of his life, he had every tropical disease there is. And he was still preaching the gospel. And he wrote a letter to the churches of England and, and kind of remonstrating with them for their lack of concern for lost people. And he said, he wrote a little poem, and he said, some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And that is a man who was captivated by eternity, who realized that if eternity is true, that I am surrounded by everlasting souls, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. What is the most important thing I can do? That's, that's the idea there. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Our problem isn't money. I know rich Christians who are not greedy people, who live as stewards of their mission and use their money wisely for the Lord. I know poor Christians who are the most materialistic people I know. It's not, it is not an issue of how much you have. It is what you do with what you have and who, who you're trusting. And that's why Jesus goes on. And he said to his disciples, for this reason, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Remember, greed and fear always travel together. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, could add a single hour to his lifespan? That's a verse I'm quoting to myself a lot lately, because I find myself worrying about a lot, and what, what good are you doing? You have no control over it. 
If you, if then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Do not seek what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Do not keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows you need these things, but seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. My view of possessions and money is determined by my faith. If I believe that I have a God who loves me and is promised to take care of me every day of my life, just like he takes care of the rest of his creation, then I don't have to focus my life on accumulating and hanging on to. I can use these things for God's use and God's kingdom now because God will keep providing for me. If I don't believe in that, unbelief will lead me into slavery to greed. That's what, Paul say, what Jesus is saying. Now, here's what I want you to see. If I'm living my life by faith in God and his love for me, it will give me eternal values. I will begin to see my money in terms of eternity. I'll look at it like someone who knows he's going to live forever. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make for yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The more I believe in the God of the Bible, the more eternal my values are going to be, and I'm going to see my money as simply a tool to use for eternity. Historically, Christians have looked at money in one of three ways. Some Christians have looked at money as always good. It's always good to have it. It's better to have more. And we call that prosperity theology. And they will say, if God is really blessing you, you'll have the, the best car, the best house. You're, God wants to glorify himself through you by giving you all his stuff so people will be jealous and say, boy, I'd like to know that guy. Have you ever met Christians like that? We've heard of them, haven't we? The other way to look at money is look at money as always bad. That money is always bad, and therefore it's always a temptation. And so free yourself from that. We call this poverty theology that the most spiritual Christians have the least because they're not, they're not materialistic at all. They live very simple lives in little huts, and they stay free of anything that might tempt them. I don't think either one of those is biblical. Because the other way, and the biblical way that we're to look at money is stewardship theology, which is money and possessions are simply things God has entrusted us to use for his glory, for his purpose. And if I'm living by faith, I will be focused on how can I use everything that God has given me for his purposes in the world. What are those purposes? Well, Jesus told us, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Do you manage 
your finances as if you will live forever and one day will report to God how you used your money, used your possessions, used what God gave to you, or as if you're never, if, if this life is all there is. Are you rich towards God or poor towards God? Are you investing money in the spread of the gospel, in loving your neighbor, in planting churches, in making disciples? If you are, you're laying up treasures in heaven. Now, when we were, gosh, younger, I, I remember reading Proverbs 3, verse 8. Um, Honor the Lord from all your wealth and from the first fruits of all your produce. And your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And there is a principle that runs throughout the scripture. If you honor God with your money first, he will take care of all your needs and will provide money for you to give to others. And so if you're just getting started in this, let me tell you, I have never met anyone who started tithing who could afford to do it. People would say, you know, we've got credit cards up. We're maxed out on our credit cards. We've got so many bills. stuff. I can't afford to tithe. And I've always told them the same thing. You can't afford not to tithe. Because you're in this mess because you're not tithing. And person after person will come back to me in a couple of months and say, it's amazing. It's amazing. This bill, is, this bill disappeared. This bill, God is just giving us so much more on so much less. The issue is, do I trust God? And so just get started. Get started. Pick a percentage that you'll feel and commit that to the Lord. Every month, no matter what, I'm going to give this to the Lord and see what the Lord will do. Because until you do that, you will always be a slave to money rather than a ruler of money. Does that make sense? This is just one example. One example of how believing in eternity will shape the person you are and determine the effectiveness of your life. We'll look at a, another one uh, next week. Here's what I want you to see. The Christian life is not a bunch of rules. The Christian life is living by faith in the living God. Amen. And the more you live by faith in the God as he reveals himself, the more these kinds of things you will begin to do. And uh, one of the frustrations for me is I, I've been trying to become a, a more loving person. I'm, 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 not a, I'm not a very loving person. I, I just don't have time to love people. You know, I just, <laughs> and so... And so I thought the problem was my memory, right? So I will, I will be in a situation and, and I'll forget that why you're here is you're for here for that person. And I'll think, no, I'm here to get this done. And, uh, and hopefully that person won't take too much of my time. And so I think, oh, I've got to memorize more commands. I've got to memorize some commands about loving people more and being more gentle and stuff and all this stuff. Because I don't remember the commands. Well, what I realize, that, that doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt, by the way. But that ultimately, I think the way I think because I believe what I believe. And I don't really believe that God is as loving as the Bible says he is. 
that if I believe that God loves everybody and that he couldn't love us any more than he loves us, there is no one good but God, and all good things come to us from God. If I really believe that, the Bible says I will copy God. I will be that way. I'll be his son so other people can see God in me. And so it's believing in what God says about the love of God is what will make me a more loving person. Does that make sense? And that's why Paul goes to all this length in chapter 15 to clarify what the gospel teaches about life after death because believing that is so critical to living the life God wants you to live. And that's why we're going to keep, keep looking at this as, as we go. If you're not handling your finances well, don't beat yourself up. You just need to grow in faith. And so read your Bible. That's how you get faith and see what the Bible says about the character of God and how he cares for his creation. That's what Jesus said, remember? Don't be greedy. Why? Because God loves you, and he takes care of all of his creation. He's very capable of taking care of you. You can leave your welfare in his hands because he, he can take care of it better than you can. It's as our faith grows, our obedience grows. Now, let me finish with this, and we're done. We begin the Christian life by faith. We grow by faith. And if you're not a Christian, you, you don't become a Christian by obeying certain rules or coming to church or things like that. You grow by believing the gospel. And the gospel is simply a, a message of good news that even though we have rebelled against God, God has planned all of eternity to bring us back to himself. That's what the story of the Bible is about. It's about how God saves us. And he sends the hero of the Bible, Jesus, who becomes a human being, to rescue us from what our sin plunges into. Lives the life we fail to live so that we can be credited with his perfect record of righteousness. Dies the death we deserve to die. Dies in our place so God can forgive our sin and then rises from the dead so that we can rise from the dead and live forever. And a Christian is simply a person who believes that, who puts their faith in Christ, asks Jesus to come into his life, repents of living their own life, and says, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. I am incapable of living the kind of life you want me to live. Come into my life and make me the person you want me to be. And if you've never ask Christ to come in your life, I invite you to do that today because he'll come in and change you just as he's changed many of us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we have all of eternity to look forward to, that we'll be together with you in heaven and all the people of God, all the billions you're saving. Thank you for your great goodness. Help us to live as people who know they will live forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.